is Our American Stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between have recorded there. And our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit pay dirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we've got out of a theater, etc., etc. Uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so, consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought, and of course immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons, and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove, and he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and, uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of but who are you to tell her who to love? That's up to her. Yes, and the Lord above. You better move on. You better move on. After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, Uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, Played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, et cetera, et cetera, but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. 
After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie K. Doe and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is 
is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. You gotta remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times, and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here. I had more trouble when I went to L.A. or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world Now you find that you've been misused Talk to me, I'll do what you choose I want you to tell mama This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Rick Hall knew that he had a big, fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. Said, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two. Number one. 
Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seemed to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him, he didn't like. The songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shows, and there was just a listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances which was enormous and the energy and the scenario of that record it, to me is wonderful to this day the projection just something that comes that leaps out of a record I call it the sonority of the record that it's different from the rhythm it's not exactly the sound it's not the songs it's the gestalt it's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly and to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and love to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in... Um Muscle shows and these cats are these cats are really greasy. You're gonna love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in '66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording.
Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch. Uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time, and uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, here on Our American Story. American stories and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals and we were all laughing in the studio Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall who's that guy playing guitar on that track and he says oh some hippie kid living in the parking lot and that was Dwayne Allman folks in the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock and now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big big music town in this country here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. 
but there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them. Because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I, I, I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, 
of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, LA, Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at... Uh Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford, was seeing uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, hmm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu- in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, they'll listen to the demo, they'll write a chart out, and without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off, and then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound 
Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. Everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. And it's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live, and I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in, in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A., and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A., and the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles, I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section. Really, I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, <laughs> and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? 
And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where, you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I love. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know... You know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be, you know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want... Or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you the guitar player just plays very few notes. And that's one of the things I really love about it is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is if people hear a great song and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture you. We don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town. We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could and, and I did. And it has served me well but along with that I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. 
That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think the the muscle shows sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a, it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. I, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios for the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river, it's the space, it's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach... But they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small-town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artists, what a crazy idea. The musicians serving a song. 
If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music. The story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories, and we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. You are the hour in Our American Stories. And it's time now for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what this Rule of Law thing is, and what happens when it's absent or present in our lives. Today's edition comes from a Wisconsin father named Michael Bell. I got a phone call at 2 a.m. on November 9, 2004. It was my oldest daughter, and she said, Dad, you need to come to the hospital right away. Michael's been shot. When I arrived, I saw that the district attorney was huddled with about five police officers. The last time I saw my son alive was on a gurney. His head was wrapped in a big towel and blood was coming out of it. I had learned that an officer had put a gun directly to Michael's right temple. The gun misfired and then did it again, and this time he shot him. From the beginning, I cautioned patience, though Michael's mother and sister were in uproar. But as an Air Force officer and a pilot, I knew the way that safety investigations are conducted. And I was thinking that this was going to be conducted the same way, yet within 48 hours I got the message. The police had cleared themselves of all wrongdoing. In 48 hours. They hadn't even taken statements from several witnesses. Crime lab reports showed that my son's DNA or fingerprints were not on any gun or holster. Even though some of the police involved in Michael's shooting had claimed that Michael had grabbed his gun. The officer who killed my son... His name was Albert Gonzalez. He is not only still on the force at 10 years later, he is a licensed um, concealed gun instructor down in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune uh, did an investigative story uh, and he was listed as one of the multiple instructors with documented histories of making questionable decisions about when to use force. From the beginning, um, I allowed the investigation to proceed I didn't know it was a sham until many of the facts were discovered. But before long, I realized the cover-up was underway. I hadn't understood at first how closely related the DA and the police were. During his election campaign for judge, the DA had been endorsed in writing by every police agency in our county. 
Now he was investigating them and it was a clear conflict of interest. I wanted to uncover the truth, and so our family hired a private investigator who ended up teaming with a retired police detective to launch their own investigation, and they, they discovered that the officer who thought his gun was being grabbed, in fact, had caught his gun on a broken car mirror. The emergency medical technicians who arrived later found the officers fighting with each other over what had happened, and we ended up filing a 1,100-page report detailing Michael's killing with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. It took us six years to get a wrongful death lawsuit settled, and our family received $1.75 million. I wasn't satisfied by a long shot. I used my entire portion of that money and much more of my own to continue a campaign for more police accountability. I wanted to change things for everyone else so no one else would have to go through what our family did. And we did our research. In 129 years since police and fire commissions were created in the state of Wisconsin, we could not find one single ruling by a police department, an inquest, or a police commission that a shooting by a police officer was found unjustified. There was one shooting we found in 2005 that was ruled justified by the department and an inquest jury, but additional evidence provided by citizens caused the DA to charge the officer. The city of Milwaukee settled with a confidentiality agreement in that particular case and the facts of that remain sealed and the officer involved and eventually committed suicide. So you can see that there's a problem. To me, the problem over the decades, in other words, was a near total lack of accountability for wrongdoing. If police on duty believe they can get away with almost anything, they will act accordingly. As a military pilot, I knew that if law professionals investigated police-related deaths like, say, the National Transportation Safety Board investigated aviation mishaps, that police-related deaths would be at an all-time low. And so, together with a number of other families in Wisconsin, I launched a campaign in Wisconsin legislation calling for a new law that would require outside review of all deaths in police custody. I contacted everybody. I mean, in the beginning, I contacted the governor's office, the attorney general's office, and the U.S. attorney for Wisconsin. Didn't even bother to return my calls or, or letters. And then I went further. I contacted Oprah, every Associated Press Bureau in the nation, every national magazine, and every news agency, and I didn't hear a word. But I reached out to Frank Serpico, the famous uh, retired New York police detective, and he helped. He had his own experience with taking on police corruption. I set up billboards and a website. I took out newspaper ads, including national ads in the New York Times and USA Today, and Frank Serpico allowed me to use his endorsement. When police take a life, should they investigate themselves? That's what the ad read. Finally, we began to get some movement. I was helped by a friendly Republican legislator, his name was Gary Byes, and a Democratic Assemblyman, uh, her name was Chris Taylor. We passed a law that made Wisconsin the first state in the nation to mandate at a legislative level that police-related deaths be reviewed by an outside agency. I need you to know that I'm not anti-cop, and I'm finding that many police want change as well. It was the good officers in the state of Wisconsin that supported our bill from the inside and it was endorsed by five police unions. And great job on that to uh, Alex and Robbie, and thanks so much to Michael Bell Sr. And condolences for your loss, first of all. I mean, what a thing to learn 
And my goodness, we, we found out that the gun got caught in a mirror. Okay, so he thought someone was pulling at the gun, and he found out that's what happened. Why not just say that? It's okay. You made a mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. It's the cover-up that ruins everything, right? You didn't go out there to kill a kid, and you got to live with it. I mean, the cop who does this has to live with it his whole life an accident. But don't cover it up. The family deserves to know the truth. Everyone does. And you knew the truth. It's a great story, and it's why rule of law matters in everyone's life. And that Wisconsin passed this rule, making all deaths at the hands of an officer reviewable by an outside party. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin and to Michael Bell Sr. Michael Bell Sr.'s story, his son's story, a great legislative story here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories. And we have a few regular contributors that we like to call our own that we've discovered. Uh, some just were people who sent in their stories, others we bumped into along the way. And folks just said, You got to meet this guy. He's our resident storyteller. And every town's got a few people who are the resident storytellers. And that brings us to the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Someone you don't know, but whose voice and life will most certainly captivate you. It has certainly captivated us. In today's episode, Bob brings us to a childhood passion, boxing, and the match the Marines forced him to fight during the Vietnam War. Often when my parents returned from home from an evening out at the cocktail lounge or at the staff club, my mother would dash up to her room and go to bed leaving my father to have a couple drinks by himself in the kitchen. It would be at these times when my father would walk into my bedroom, turn on the light, and wait for me to wake up. I would pull the covers over my head and ask him, what are you doing turning the light on for? I've got school in the morning. He would stand in the doorway with this pouty look on his face like I hurt his feelings and say, gee, you don't mind if I check to see if my children are safe and okay, do you? What kind of father do you think I am? But now that you're awake, why don't you come downstairs and I'll fix you something to eat. I'm going to go change. Why don't you get everything ready? These late night conversations around the kitchen table occurred many times over the years and throughout my life. And it was here, sitting alone across the table from him, that I came to know the man I called Dad. I would go down to the kitchen and get some eggs and bread and start putting everything together. He never fixed anything for himself. I, I got that by now. I had to fix everything. That was one of the reasons why I was there. Late at night, I knew he was partial to B&M Boston baked beans on saltines and herring and sour cream. My God, I used to look at it and just think I'm sick. I asked him how could he eat that stuff. He replied that growing up in his family, they were very poor. He said he even ate bean sandwiches at school. He said he was so poor that at Christmas time his father would cut holes in his pockets so he had something to play with. He would arrive in his bathrobe, boxer shorts, and t-shirt 
make himself a drink, and sit at the seat in the corner. The throne, I called it. From that seat, he could see everyone in the kitchen, the stairway, and the front door. Most importantly, it was within arm's length of the refrigerator. The kitchen was the room that was the center in our house. We had a downstairs family room, but no one bothered to use it, probably because it didn't have a refrigerator to chill a beer or an ice machine for cocktails. Settling in with a smoke and some fish and beer, he would just sit, resting his large body upon his elbows, head hanging slightly, and stare down at his drink. I would sit across from him wondering, what the heck am I doing here? I gotta go to school in the morning, and I knew he's not gonna let me sleep in simply because I'm down here being company for him. It certainly seemed to be of no concern to him. There are not many things to talk with him about. But, you know, I knew by then he didn't invite me there to talk. He invited me down to listen. You know, being nine years of age, I was too young to have been in the Marines, drink alcohol, chase women, or do anything that was of interest to him. I didn't have any stories of anything like that that he'd even find amusing. He was not the type to do child talk the way mothers do, you know, like, well, how's my little baby? And what did you do in school today? Oh my, what a beautiful finger painting. No, no, not my father. He preferred talking up and not down. His world consisted of subjects, of adult men and women. He wasn't interested in what was happening in fourth grade. The distance across the table was only a few feet away, but from my seat in this theater of my father, I watched and listened to a man who by any measure lived a life that boys could only imagine in their games. I would listen and wonder and wish that someday I could grow up and be like my father. Little did I realize then that he was truly unique and a copy is not the original. If I wanted to get into a conversation with him, I had to take it to him, or I would garner no attention. By nine, I'd had enough of these experiences with him to know some subjects that would engage him other than the Marines. My favorite was boxing. He loved boxing, and so did I. He could recreate the fight he listened to on the radio when Max Bear killed his opponent in the ring. Round by round, he could describe the power in Bear's punches as legendary. My father thought Bear would reign forever if it weren't for the death of Frankie Campbell. Instead, Max Bear retired early and moved to Hollywood, where, with his handsome face and reputation, opened many studio and bedroom doors. My father liked that story a lot. I knew the questions to ask him to bring us closer together during those late nights at the kitchen table. I wanted to be a fighter. Football was fun, but there were too many people and too many rules. Boxing's just two men, shorts, a cup, socks, gloves, and shoes. It doesn't get any more basic than that. When the fight ends, there's seldom any confusion about who is the winner. Usually, it's the one still standing that gets the glory. He asked me if I wanted to box for the city team down at the rec center. He thought since I was always fighting in school, that learning to fight as a sport would be a good outlet for me. He also said that since I had such a big mouth, I better learn to take care of myself. The Army Field House at Fort Buckner, Okinawa was an enormous athletic facility and included an indoor pistol range, basketball courts, and a boxing room. It was in that room as I was listening to the whirring of my speed bag that I was approached by a Marine gunnery sergeant. He watched my hands working the bag into different rhythms and asked me, hey, 
Are you in the Marines? I told him I was and continued my workout, and then he asked me if I minded meeting someone. Walking with him to the ring, he introduced me to the regimental boxing coach. And he asked if I would go a couple rounds with him. I said, I pass. I'm not in shape enough to go a couple rounds, frankly. I'm not interested in getting involved with a team as I'm heading back to the United States in a month. But some of the team members gathered around and began to tease me with remarks like, oh, come on now, I won't hurt you. Just two little rounds, that's all. I finally agreed that I would not fight for this guy, but I'd give him the two rounds. He was overweight with a good-sized belly on him, and he was a showboat, intending to entertain his team with me. To me, he was all mouth and out of shape. Worse, his biggest weakness was overestimating his ability while underestimating his opponents before the first round even started. Arrogance in the boxing ring is a very careless and dangerous attitude. As I circled him in the second round, I watched him dance in and out of my reach with what he obviously mistook for footwork. My feet were set shoulder width apart, my right foot set back to the heel and toe stance. A punch like a bullet cannot propel itself. The power of a punch isn't in the hand. It starts with the planted feet set firmly on the ground with legs coiled to push that power up through the twisting torso as the force of the blow reaches the shoulder and the arm launches a loaded fist into your opponent's face. His hands were barely up to his shoulders when I greeted him with the first left jab into his face. Knocking him back, I followed with a quick second jab, which left him defenseless. Like a lightning bolt, my right cross surged with all my power from my legs to my glove and caught him flush right into the face. The impact of the blow sent him falling back to the ropes. He gathered himself quickly, but as he approached me, waiting for him in the center of the ring, the bell rang and the round ended. I turned and walked to my corner and took my gloves off despite his protest to continue. As I told him, I only agreed to do two rounds. I enjoyed walking out of that boxing room, watching him standing in the center of the ring after making a fool of himself. Leaving the gym, the gunny asked me if I would fight on Tuesday night. Oh, I said, Tuesday night? Tuesday night just gives me three days to train, and I knew I needed much more time. I said no, and I left. A couple days later, the Army Special Services promoter called me to ask me if I was from Portland. I said, yeah, I am. Why? He said, I see your name down on the program to fight the heavyweight fight on Tuesday night. I immediately called the gunny who informed me in no uncertain terms that the Marines needed me for that fight and he reminded me with a threat. You may not be aware, Marine, but there are Marines down south fighting in this war while you're up here having a pretty good time on Okinawa. Either you fight Tuesday night, or I'm going to put you in for a transfer to Vietnam. I had one month remaining on my tour overseas. Orders to Vietnam would add another six to my overseas duty. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story. You're listening to Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Bob McClellan's story. And where we last left off, Bob was being forced to fight in a boxing match or go to Vietnam. Now, I'm waiting in the locker room for my name to be called. I was very angry that I was put in this position. I knew what it took to be out there in the ring, and I didn't have the body or the soul to do it anymore. Three rounds didn't sound like much, but when you're out there all alone getting your head pounded for three rounds, you lose all sense of time passing. Being hit is a timeless experience. You feel like it's going to go on forever. I promised myself that this would be my last match, win or lose, and if they sent me down south to Vietnam, or the hell with them, I'll go. I entered the arena and walked up the three steps to the ring. In seconds, we would be left alone to fight. Round one was an opportunity to see what this guy could do. I could see he was a novice and perhaps this was his first fight. He had no footwork whatsoever and certainly no style. He just kept plodding forward with his hands up and his head down. He just methodically kept coming forward into my left jabs looking for an opportunity to hit me. As we threw punches back and forth, you could hear the sound of the slapping of the leather gloves. What was to come, what was needed, was the dull thud of a punch to the head. I took advantage of my height, reach, and experience and kept him back from me to score quick points while not exposing myself too much. We moved across the ring, and as we were next to the ropes, I saw him open his gloves and quickly slam two hard lefts and a right cross into his face. Standing so close to him, I could see the perspiration fly from his head into the air as his head jerked sharply to the right. His jaw went in one direction and his head went in another. The expression on his face indicated that I had hurt him all right, but he did not go down or back up as I had expected. Now, I'm within his range. I knew I had to get out into the open center of the ring. It was then that his punch hit me in the jaw. There was no pain from the punch. The torque of the jaw and a stun-numbing feeling caused me to black out. He hit me so hard that both of my gloves flew away from my body towards the center of the ring exposing my head to more of his punches. I was off balance and I knew I was in trouble. He advanced closer to finish me. His right fist was cocked and ready to take my head off my shoulders. My only thought was to fall down to the canvas, take a couple seconds to ruin his momentum and well-earned advantage, then get up and beat the crap out of him. I don't recall anything after that. I had no idea that I was unconscious. I had no idea of what had happened. Instead of being on the ropes, I found myself coming to face down in the center of the ring after doing two full pirouettes before falling unconscious. The first clue that something was desperately wrong was when I heard the word six. Six, I thought. I tried to remember what it meant. Seven came next. At seven, I knew what had happened, where I was, and what I had to do. Until you return to your senses, there is no sound in the ring when you come out from a knockout. With the bright lights above you, you can't see any of the faces out in the audience screaming. All I could see were the shoes of the referee, hear the count, and stare at the white but rough texture of the canvas. I was up and at him by nine. I chased and punched him like a bag hanging in a boxing room, but he would not go down. I was so frustrated that I didn't hear the first ring of the bell ending the round. Round two, I was getting tired. He advanced and again we exchanged punches. More leather slapping. 
I tripped over his feet as he hit me with a faint left jab. I found myself once again down on the canvas while the ref started to count again. I was so frustrated, I got up and I was at him once more, scoring blow after blow, but I was unable to knock him down. Exhausted? I sat on my stool watching the doctor decide whether to let him continue. I did open a large cut in the soft tissue of his upper eyelid. He was cut and he was bleeding. I prayed that they would call the fight. I dreaded the prospect of going out there one more round. My hopes faded, however, as I watched the doctor signal the referee to continue the bout. Round three. By now, we were both exhausted. He wanted no part of me, nor I of him. In my mind, I'd already lost the fight. A knockout in the first and a knockdown in the second is hard to overcome on points. Since I had no one in my corner, as my coach never forgave me for embarrassing him, I had no idea how I was doing, and therefore was left with all my doubts, fatigue, and fears. I could see my opponent also wanted to run out the clock. I had heard him, but not enough to win. All I could feel was my lungs sucking for air. Clashing with him again, we were exchanging punches, went out of nowhere. I felt that familiar thud of his right cross into the side of my head. I stepped back, I was stunned, and momentarily I went blank. The ref quickly stood in front of me, examining my eyes and asked, how many fingers do you see? I said, three. He said, you okay? I took a second I said, you know, I don't know. No, I'm not okay. I quit this, screw this. And then I walked over to my corner. There were 33 seconds left to go. His corner jumped into the ring and raised his hand. I felt so humiliated. That night, I had never felt as ashamed and embarrassed in my life until the next morning. A photo of myself and my opponent was sitting on the front page of the sports section of the Morning Star. It was taken as we were along the ropes just before his knockout punch was thrown. The headlines read, Boone upsets McClellan. I quickly read the article which described the fight as a clear victory for me until the third and final round. It said that in spite of the knockouts, I carried the first round on points. I carried the second round too because it was ruled that I had tripped and was not knocked down. The newspaper raised the question as, what had happened? Why did I quit? I had 33 seconds to go. The win was mine. I never forgot that. I came back to the States, saw my folks. And finally one night, the opportunity came to tell my father the story as he sat across from me holding a cigarette. And he lifted his head and with a tone of disappointment, I could see it in his face, he said, you lost because you gave it to him. Now why in the hell would you do that? I used to tell this story when I was drinking and I was living in the city in San Francisco and I'd sit on a bar and I would tell this story as some sort of self-flagellation. Whenever I would encounter something, an obstacle that I had difficulty overcoming, I would sit there and I'd beat myself up over and over that defeats like this were really indicative of my weak character. Just like my life, my defeat validated that deep insecurity that confirmed my low opinion of myself 
that I was a quitter. An opinion gained from being unsuccessful at almost everything I did in my life. My father was deeply disappointed, not by the fact that I lost, but that I quit. A friend asked me about it one day and remarked, gee, it must have taken a lot of guts to climb into that ring with 5,000 people watching. I said, you bet it takes a lot of guts. I didn't see anybody lined up at the steps to get in there. He said, it's sad that you never gave yourself any credit for it. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a story, and what a unique voice. And we love finding new talent, and it's all over this great country. People who've just experienced real life, and they're not auditioning for a reality TV show, and they're not trying to become famous. They're people we all know, and some of them might be you, and you have great stories. And send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them. And it's so interesting that Bob got that friend's perspective. He got his dad's perspective, and his, his dad was right. He did give it to him. But, you know, sometimes we miss the good that we do and focus on the bad and that that friend pointed out to him that he got in that ring to begin with. Well, it's true. He did. Bob McClellan's story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and we love telling stories about music here on the show and particularly about the stories of songs and this, well this is a good one. For a very brief period in 1979, The Knack looked like the future of rock and roll. It was the summer of the infamous disco demolition night at Comiskey Park in Chicago and many old school rock fans were ready to embrace a new band. Into this void stepped the neck and their song, My Sharona, which reached number six on Rolling Stone's top ten one-hit wonders of all time. Here's Greg Hengler with this story of a song. Even now, multiple decades after the biggest single of 1979, Sharona Elprin can't escape it. Almost any time someone hears my name, Miss Elprin says, they say, Oh, like, my Sharona? And then they say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. You probably hear that all the time. They have no idea. She's not just a Sharona. She's the Sharona. The object of the Knack's bopping 1979 hit, My Sharona. The band's lead singer, Doug Figer, wrote the song's lustful lyrics about her when she was 17 and he was 26. Here's Doug Figer. It is a song that has a life of its own. It's not just a song. It's a cultural icon, if you will. The song became Billboard's number one single of 1979. Here's the next bassist, Prescott Niles. People do know the name of the band. But my experience is they go, yeah, um, you know, 
My Sharona. Oh yeah, that's my favorite song and my kids and my wife and you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's got a story about My Sharona. My Sharona has never gone away. Ben Stiller built a memorable scene around the song in his 1994 directorial debut, Reality Bites, claiming it for Generation X. Nirvana did a grunge version, and the tune was reported to be on President George W. Bush's iPod in 2005. It's an odd kind of fame being the person in the song. Here's Sharona Elprin. People stay like my Sharona. And very, very often I say, yes, I'm the same girl that the song was written about, and they can't believe it. <laughs> lead singer Doug Figer explains how My Sharona all started with lead guitarist Burton Avere. Burton had a drum figure that he played me. Now, he's since told me that it was only months but I seem to remember it was a couple of years before we actually wrote the song. He, you know, beat it out on his, on his legs, showed me this drum beat. It was before he told me, you know, what the riff was going to be even. He just said, I have this beat. Here's Burton. I'd been listening a lot to the second Elvis Costello album, and there was this, this, this appeal of this kind of demented approach to rock and roll, you know, just kind of balls to the wall and slamming. And I had this riff, and I brought it into one of our rehearsals, and I just started playing it. I didn't even say, you know, um, hey, here's something. I just started playing the riff, and uh, I was telling Bruce, I imagined. Um, no symbols, just kind of a, a tom snare kind of thing, and he came up with the riff. Here's drummer Bruce Gary. My roots are very much surf music. My first band was a surf band, and there was surf stomps. And I can show you, you know, a, a surf stomp is like a flam thing. It's like a... Which is, which is, uh, basically, he wanted it to be, you know, kind of... And I interjected the flam thing which gave it its own characteristic to it. Here it is, the only My Sharona rehearsal tape in existence. It's Burton's lick, of course. This is what we fueled everything off of, the main riff. We have been playing around locally for, for a couple of months, and there were a couple of girls that used to, actually three of them, we used to, uh, kind of affectionately call them the Nackettes, you know. They used to come down to hear us perform, and one of them was named Sharona. And my lead singer, Doug, had a, quite a crush on Sharona. I, I had to have her. It consumed me. <laughs> uh, she was my muse. She, she compelled me. Here again is Sharona Alpern. One time I went, and I remember, I think it was Burton or Doug or someone was like, should we play it, should we play it for her? And I uh, didn't even know what they were talking about. I was sitting on the couch. It could have been anything. It was a normal day like any other day. And then the next, the next memory I have, I was in my car thinking, did I just hear a song with my name in it? Did, was that my name in the song? And it was in my head. But uh, right away, I just, I couldn't believe I, that there was a song with my name in it. 
recorded at MCA Whitney Studios on Glendale Boulevard in uh, Glendale. It's not there anymore. We decided to record it there with Mike Chapman. We felt it was a, uh, better than doing it in Hollywood because there's no distractions there. It's like that studio is set in an area where there's really nothing else. So we were able to concentrate more in there. Here's producer Mike Chapman. But they, they played the song right there and then. And I said, well, stop. And they said, what, you don't like it? And I said, no, of course I like it. I said, that's a number one. Absolutely. You've, you've got to know you have a number one song. You ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. He said, start the tape. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a sliding way. Uh, Mike's contribution was saying, I think the way you should record this album is as if you were playing your club set. Uh, probably my main contribution was to leave it alone, was to record it well and not mess around with it. Uh, and my job was to put it on tape and to make it sound the way it sounded when they did it live. Within months of their live debut, popular club gigs on the Sunset Strip, as well as guest jams with musicians such as Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and Ray Manzarek, led to the band being the subject of a record label bidding war. The band was pursued by 10 record labels, but decided on going with Capitol Records. Here again is Burton. When we got our record deal and the record was made, everybody knew. I mean, everybody from the start just knew Sharon was the song. But there were some, you know, second guessers at the record company were saying, well, you know, hard rock on the radio right now... And uh, they actually kind of did a little dance about maybe Sharona not being the first release, which was absurd, and we all knew it. So instead of saying, you don't know what you're talking about, we just kind of held our tongue and uh, because the song did its work for itself, you know. Here's Doug. They didn't release the single until two weeks after the album had been released. But the day the album was released to radio, my Sharona became the most added record as an album cut in the world. It went from, from nobody ever having heard it to being in heavy rotation in one day. It was a phenomenon. It was on every single minute, no matter where I went. The minute it was on the airplanes. Then I'd get off an airplane. I'd get in a limousine or a cab. It was in the limousine or cab. I'd get to the hotel. It was in the hotel. We would go on vacation. The top 40 band who was playing in the lobby or in the piano bar played my Sharona. You couldn't escape it. At one time, I would turn it off sometimes. I even think that they might have made it music in dentist's office or in the grocery stores without the words. I got the girl. Sharona did become my girlfriend. It took me a year, you know, after I wrote it. Took me a year. She was, she was, you know, very, very. She played very hard to get, and uh, but we became uh, good friends, and we lived together for three and a half years. You know, having it become a hit again in the '90s was a remarkable thing. Getting to tour America with a whole new audience of young kids that didn't. No, it had been a hit 15 years earlier. 
that was remarkable. You know, and I still meet kids today, young people, you know, who were like 12 when it was a hit from Reality Bites, you know, and to them it's their youth. And, and there are people, you know, my age who it was their youth too because we all had that experience when, when it first happened. And, and now, I mean, people play it, I mean, you know, all over the place. They play it at sporting events. So I think because of the youthfulness of it and because it's not so much restricted stylistically to the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, I just think it keeps reinventing itself. And I'm, for, and I'm happy about that because it doesn't sound like it's, 19, you know, it's this particular year. It's got a real uh, timelessness about it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, Greg, and what a story. And that song, well, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head, whether you like it or not. It's stuck. And my goodness, to have a song written about you at that age. Doug Figer was 26, Sharona. Well, she was 17. She was my muse, because he ached. She compelled me, he said. Recorded in Glendale, California, not far from where my sister and dad and her husband live. My main contribution, said producer Mike Chapman, I left it alone. That's sometimes the hardest thing for a producer to do. The story of my Sharona, the story of a song, here on Our American Story. Keep your 